Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Ian Livingston. He is the co-founder and VP of engineering of a company called Dropout Labs. This interview was very interesting because I've done a lot of episodes on remote work, including the one with the CEO of GitLab, Sid, uh, and Natalie Nagel from Wildbit, who's been doing remote work since 2001. And this was really interesting, this one, because we were able to talk about that subject within the context of a new series I'm doing, which you might have already become aware of, which is the rise of startup ecosystems and global entrepreneurship around the world. And the main interesting tidbit I got out of this interview was that there's a long tail of companies, um, and Ian and some other people at Dropout Labs are living in Halifax, Canada. Uh, and there's in this long tail of the, in their hardcore engineering in a specific niche of cyber data, uh, data and um, how to work with sensitive data in a machine learning way. Uh, and so they're in this small place, and then they need access to talent. And there's no talent that they need in that specific location. So they found other people around the world who they need. And so there's this long tail for remote work that remote work for startups in particular really works. Uh, and then that's going to be mixed with what I'm also going into, which is that there are large urban centers. I first got onto this this uh, unique insight from Tyler Willis, uh, who lives in, in Denver and started a company there. Uh, and there's going to be large urban centers around the world as well that also become hubs for this entrepreneurial activity. And so we've got Silicon Valley, which will remain dominant. Relatively, we've got the rise of these urban centers around the world. And then further out on this long tail, where you have these really specific companies that are doing deep tech in specific things that can be distributed. And also another interesting tidbit I got on this is that um, biology is now mostly uh, mostly computational. So, uh, and I learned this on the episode I just published yesterday uh, with Torsten Koland is that most of this is is being done uh, in silico, as he says. So on silicone chips, most of biology is doing that. So even biology companies can be distributed in this way as well. So there's all this really interesting stuff and I am really excited to get into it. As you may know, I'm, I'm going to be moving to Colombia uh, and I'm going to be getting my Spanish good, good enough to start doing a lot more interviews in Spanish and start getting this from a different language angle as well. And if you're interested in that, please find us on, on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom. Be very humbled if you were to leave us a review, if you find this information useful and effective and informational. I've been doing this now for two years. I love doing it. I've done, God, I might be in the 170, 180 interview range. And this next month, I have about 30 more interviews scheduled. So I'm creating a lot. And I hope you guys are finding it as valuable as I am. Uh, and so if you are, yeah, please find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, III. I'd love to hear what you think personally. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Ian Livingston. He is the co-founder and v VP of engineering at Dropout Labs, uh, and really excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I've listened to a bunch of your other stuff, and it's super insightful, and I've been following you for a while on Twitter, and you've, you've taken definite unique insight into a bunch of different topics that uh, 
that have been close home to me lately, especially things like uh, mindfulness and properly how to achieve like a mindful state, um, which is especially hard when you're, you're working in, in a startup or trying to build something. So I'm super excited to be here. I get the feeling this is going to be a really interesting conversation. So before we go into anything else, I get the impression that Dropout Labs uh, is creating something interesting and I want to go more into what it is, but it also seems like I just have this picture of my mind of basically you guys in Nova Scotia, Canada, in what is like the garage, and I mean this in the best possible way, the, 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 the proverbial garage of the new globalized remote technology innovation center, basically. That's the idea I have in my head. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're not far from the truth. Um, it's not as glorious, I think, as actually having us all in a garage. I think that would be much cooler. But yeah. you know, we're all uniquely in our own garages, and yet all together at the same time. So, uh, <laughs> which which has really unique challenges. Um, but it's that's a, that's a pretty good model. You know, I think we've, we've now changed to virtual garages, uh, and we stitch ourselves together using software that we didn't have, you know, before ten years ago. So, and. And that's, I mean, in this metaphor of the garage, like that's why they use the garage uh, in Silicon Valley because it was cheaper. Um, and it was like, you didn't have to pay much rent and you could just kind of do it in the garage until you got it out, figured it out. And now it's impossible to do that in a garage in San Francisco because the garage itself is too expensive. Um, and so it's really interesting, this, this remote work thing. So let's get, let's get into Dropout Labs and what, what Dropout Labs does exactly. Cool, great. Yeah, so Dropout Labs, um, we're a company, uh, we're, we're a lab. I mean, that's what we started with. We started with, the, with this idea uh, around data privacy and the intersection of data privacy and artificial intelligence um, and how important or how much data that you need to, to actually construct an artificial intelligence model and you know how to apply artificial intelligence to areas of society that have a lot of private data that creates this like restriction or this bottleneck to actually training mm -hmm. models because it's very difficult to get to actually get access to the data. So what we're building is privacy preserving machine learning, enabling data scientists to access private data without actually like with while giving the data owner control uh, over how the data is used. And in, in many cases, uh, control to ensure the safety of the data so that the data scientist doesn't actually get access to the raw data itself. That's so interesting. So it seems similar to maybe like this is a, a orthogonal, but it's a um, last pass. I remember I was using a company that would ask for my password using LastPass, but it didn't give them access to the password. It just gave them access to whatever site the password had for them. Um, and so you guys are doing that, but on a much bigger scale of essentially there's a company that comes in and says, we have this data, it's private. It's not something that we can, we can give out, but we want to learn from this data. How do we do that? Exactly. So most of the time, the, the use cases and the challenges are we what, we what we really want, you know, is that there's a person needs a model train, what they really want is to gain intelligence or insight from the data, they don't want access to the actual data themselves, it tends, you know, no one wants the liability. And those use cases that occur, like, it's, you know, now that we've been into it for a little over a year, those use cases occur both like inside companies, so you have very large companies that have private data, where you have security and privacy organizations that are saying, hey, you can't access this data anymore, it's too sensitive, what happens mm -hmm. if your laptop gets stolen? We also have these interesting use cases where you have data owners that have a large amount of data, like a Facebook, for instance, um, or some of these data brokerages that have access to data, but data is also the thing that they charge for. Um, 
And so how can I give you the data and then maybe you just walk away with it or it gets lost. So a lot of this comes down to like retaining ownership of the data and exercising control over it and it retaining mm-hmm. the same properties as if it was like a, as if it was a, like a good that you could just give to somebody and then you could track where it was. So this is really interesting because this, this, this is going to go in a whole other direction than I was expecting. So what the, the last 300 years, 500 years, I mean, property rights have been an important thing for a long time, but over the last 300 to 500 years, property rights have become a lot more important. Um, and that's physical property. And now what I'm getting the sense from what you guys are doing, what you just explained is that, and a lot of people have been talking about this for a long time about uh, data, but what I just got the imagine the, the vision that essentially the, at, so we're having a conversation, it's remote, uh, you know, in that world, as we move into a world that becomes more and more mediated by technology and by, you know, maybe even farther in the future and into virtual reality and living these lives in a virtual space, the nature of property itself will change. It has changed in my life. I don't, I'm not really concerned with owning property, physical property. Um, but this type of data thing will become, it seems like it's becoming the next form of property. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in our discussions with customers and just in our thinking around this, a lot of it comes down to we have those problems today. We're just not exactly clear of yet because yeah. it hasn't, the, the impact of it hasn't been there. One of the, one of the great examples is what happens, you know, what happens in a world where I give over a sample of my DNA to figure out my ancestry. Um, and then I didn't read the fine print around the terms of service. And now uh, insurance company can come and buy my DNA and now they can they can add the information to their credit risk profiling. And because some, at some point there's like a precursor that I could have like a heart attack or some sort some mm-hmm. sort of like precursor, like alcoholism or something that's information that's contained in that data set um, that now I'm no, I have a high risk profile. So I, I get charged more for insurance or I no longer liable for like health insurance because of this data that I didn't know I gave away. Mm-hmm. And so we're moving to this world where that we don't really understand, but we're freely giving over data all the time and we don't exactly understand who has control over it. And so that's really where we got our start was this insight around data control is really important. You know, if you spin this out with artificial intelligence 10 years from now, the data is, we people, a lot of people use the idea of data as new oil. That's an interesting analogy, but I think your analogy around property um, is really much more insightful. Like we're having someone come into your house and just take whatever they wanted and you didn't know they did it. That is really interesting. And it gets into identity as well because um, my identity, according to the US government, is a social security number. uh, And that number identifies me to the government. uh, And then I have all sorts of other kind of digital representations of identity. I got my phone number, I got my email, I've got um, and then I've got the subjective identity, which is the, the, you know, the persona on my social media stuff. And, and I'm really interested in where identity is going. I don't have any answer for that one. Cause that one seems really interesting. It also has this nature of being within a subgroup. So my identity is also kind of mediated by who, what the particular group that I'm involved with and stuff like that, but I've kind of an outsider. I was just talking about this with somebody else who was an outsider as well, who kind of insider outsider type of person who doesn't really fit into any of these groups either, but uh, that's a total tangent, but this is really interesting. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, identity, that's, that's one of the questions, right? And when you think of identity today, to take that, it is, it's kind of a tangent, but I think it's also important to add to the analogy is, well, what, how do I identify myself? Like, what are the things that make up my identity to the ex, my external identity, right? There's that internal identity, my internal voice. Mm-hmm. There's the way in which I perceive the world. And that's very much what makes me, me to me. Well, what about how does that make it me, me to someone else? And now and that's where if we get this back, you can kind of think of the data control perspective is, well, a lot of what makes me, me is the sanctity of my own internal dialogue and control over what, Mm-hmm. I can say and how I say it and how I project myself externally. But once again, you know, you think of this DNA or if you think of situations where like we've lots of mass surveillance and now someone can identify my face using like an art because I posted mm-hmm. photos to, you know, a social network and, and there's been an algorithm trained on that data. Now my ability to control and present myself and track where I've gone, I, I'm starting to lose that control. And so this isn't just a problem for individuals, but it's also a problem for companies. Um, especially. And I think, you know, when you think about where these problems will occur first in the media, and we look at what's going on in the US government with their investigations into data storage and, and data privacy uh, violations and the impact it has on the individuals, but it's also how does this impact business and how does this impact the types of companies we can build moving forward as we move into a world where people are scared of sharing data or they're more careful of what data they share and what can we actually create as a result of that. Mm. for me there um going back to the kind of personal data it's really interesting i tried to resist 23andme for a while because i was thinking that there was something in the terms of service agreement but i i i I think it's a problem that many early adopters face which is that there are a lack of options when you're adopting something and so i adopted uh a forward medical technology, which is like this um, in-person medical primary care physician thing where you pay a hundred bucks a month and you get access to really good primary care physician. uh, And they do all sorts of stuff and all the newest stuff, including uh, DNA. They can, I can get my 23 and me and then I can, uh, I can get it sent to them and then they can decode it and help me understand it. Uh, And I tried to, I tried to get away from it. I tried to, I got my full genome sequence and with somebody who maintains privacy but then the actual data that forward medical couldn't accept that data. Uh, and then, so they, they, and I tried to do a runaround and I couldn't, and ultimately I just, I couldn't do it. So I ended up doing 23andMe and I'm in, currently in the process of doing it, but it is something that I think about. I think not a lot of people think about it. I don't think it's, it's, it's something that's mainstream, like, Oh, I'm, you know, signing this terms of service agreement. I just wanted to figure out my ancestry. I don't think they're actually thinking that, but I think they're, is a, a large enough part of the population in this consumer realm. And I want to go into the business realm as well. Um, and th- those probably are, are the, the types of consumers who are, do care about data privacy also probably are starting and working in all these businesses as well. So it's probably a, a co-determinist thing. Oh, for sure. For sure. I like one great, one, one thought process there is, um, I mean, I, a lot of it comes down to the, this like higher level question of like nature versus nurture, nurture in terms of like our genetic profile and how much of that is like determined and mm. how much of that is like experience driven. And ultimately that's like, a, we could have a very long conversation about that, but when it comes back to the data control and data privacy, um, it, it is, you know, you're very much signing over like a, a certain section of or profile of yourself and how to create a certain genetic clone or biological uh-huh. clone with yourself. 
And so as you spin out, you know, years and years from now, it's, it's, a, it's a big question, like what happens and where does the data go? And then the larger question is, well, as a person, how do I know who has it? Just like, how do I actually know that? And that's what really got us started um, at Drabble Labs was trying to figure out, okay, well, how can, how can I as a consumer, we took a very like personal consumer mindset, how can I as a consumer actually control my data? Like how can I have permission and have the ability to reject people's access to data? And actually, truly, like in fundamental to the to the technology in the way that the technology works, actually achieve that outcome. Mm. Um, and that's where we got started. And we got started doing that with something called secure multi-party computation, which is a form of cryptography that allows you to compute on encrypted data, and then only the person that has the key to the data can actually decrypt the answer. And that's that was our our initial answer to this sort of conundrum of of data control. Interesting. And so this is getting into uh, what I would imagine. You said cryptography, so that and and my mind immediately goes to blockchain. And I've been thinking about this as we've been talking about how um, a lot of people are trying to build this technology. And I'm not, uh, I do not know enough about the technical side of about blockchain to make a informed um, guess at what's going on here. But I'm going to try anyway. Uh, <laughs> the uh, that the, so we've got this new technology. And it uh, allows us to do triple entry accounting um, so that we're, we're doing, you know, before the major innovation was double entry. And I believe that was when one person makes an account of what happened uh, and then somebody else checks it. I think that was what it is. I'm not sure if you do know what it is, please interrupt me. Uh, and then the th third entry accounting is now that we can get a uh, immutable record of exchange of value between two parties that it, neither party can change. Um, uh, and what uh, I know a lot of people are trying to do this in, the, in terms of data, but you guys, what is that? What can you repeat that word that you used again about the cryptography? What type of crypto cryptography? Yeah, so we're, we're, we started our, we actually started out of, the company actually started of a community called Open Mind, which is a, uh, a community, open source community dedicated to trying to figure out some of these big larger questions about data privacy, data control, and the machine learning lifecycle at, at large. And we we started with a technique or technology in, in called secure computation. So you have like data, you have, you have the ability to encrypt data as it flies across the internet. I mean, that's what HTTPS, SSL, TLS, like the things mm -hmm. that secure the credit card and empower online banking, all these other things have to do. You have the ability to encrypt data at rest. So, so it's when the data is inside a database, knowing you have to have the thing that encrypted it in order to decrypt it, right? So we have those two things. But the one last bastion of, of cryptography is the ability to encrypt and compute upon data at, while it's encrypted, uh -huh. right? Today, we, to do anything on our laptops, all of it sits in plain text inside a register, inside the CPU someplace or, or in memory or on your hard drive. And what we really, where we restarted was, okay, well, what enables you to retain, like, retain control over data, but still extract value from the data. So still get like, use it to perform computations. And so that's what brought us secure computation. And secure computation is the ability to compute on data using while it's encrypted. Uh, interesting. Yeah, and and then there's like a, and then there's a several different techniques um, or branches, if you will, under secure under the umbrella of secure computation uh, about trying to go ahead and do this. And so one of those is homomorphic encryption, uh, which is very akin to our from a mental model perspective to like regular encryption algorithms today. 
Another branch is secure multi-party computation, uh, which is different. There's a whole bunch of trade-offs that are made in comparison to homomorphic encryption. Um, and then there's another one, another interesting uh, pursuit right now or insight or branch is, is things that are done using enclaves or what are like called trusted execution environments, which are hardware chips are actually on your, your laptop or inside mm -hmm. your phone that are specifically designed for doing, for being secure and doing computations in like a trusted and secure zone Whoa. with like an explicit boundary around them. And so we've been, we've spent the last year, year and a half really trying to understand how secure computation um, and other techniques that exist that enable you to do privacy preserving computations and train privacy like models, like artificial intelligence models using privacy preserving techniques can, can enable this world where a data scientist um, can access data sets to create the models they can't today. And so like an example of those models would be a diabetic retinopathy, which is like a technique for taking a photo of your eye and, and testing whether or not that person is diabetes or could, or could possibly have diabetes, right? It's right. like a pre-screening device. But the problem with these, like, these training these models is just the first step is how do I get access to enough corpus of data that's like representative of the population such that I can train a model that is actually like deployable, that there isn't a ton, there isn't a bias so that it doesn't bias towards, you know, Caucasian males that are 35 to 40, therefore the model isn't like, isn't gonna give an accurate result to like an Asian male, you know, in the age of 20 to 25. Uh, and so there's all of this, so all of this underlying complexity um, that, and there's this huge bottleneck in actually enabling society to take advantage of artificial intelligence in our most interesting, and in some of our most impactful use cases, in places like healthcare mm. and finance, transportation, this places where their data is like considered so sensitive and where if I actually had to access that data in a huge data set, like plain text, what someone could do with that data set mm. is, is damaging, right? It, it's, it brings questions to like, what else is there? And so that's where you have, you know, there's th reasons for that. These data sets don't really exist today. And some of them are regulatory, right? There's like regulatory requirements that healthcare data is kept, you know, very secure that it's, it's siloed, that doesn't leave sort of the boundary of like the box that people draw around um, the, their premise or the company. There's like reasons of trust where I don't trust my competitive access to my data. So I'm not gonna let them have access to my data because we could be competitive or we are competitive today. Um, and then there's there's accesses, there's other, other areas um, and reasons as well on top of all that, uh, that, that prevent us from actually doing these things. And trust is the biggest one. And you can trust can either be like between companies, but also be like individuals and companies and, and between different individuals as well. And that, that, that goes back to the example of the, of I do not trust 23 and me. Um, exactly. And, and yeah, and, and yeah. That, so in th this, this goes back to a, really what I would love to talk to you about, which is kind of the meta thing of what we're talking about here. And as I'm going through this, I'll explain my full context for what's going on in my head is that um, I was, I'm worried that, we are going so niche into this conversation that some people who follow my show won't be able to follow or might not be interested in, in following, but I've done this a bunch of times. So this is not, not, it's just a constant reoccurring fear that, so, but, but this is so interesting because you, because of your ability and your interest in technology, we have a shared language. You're actually educating me on your particular niche of this shared language, but overall it's technology. Um, and, I can have this conversation with you because I grew up in Silicon Valley, even though I'm not technical, I grew up with it all around me. I have a really interest in it. Um, and 
we have this shared context. And I want to ask you, as you're growing up in Nova Scotia, and you're, you know, you're, can you explain more about how you learned um, programming or got your technical chops? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so for context, uh, Nova Scotia is a province in Canada. It's on the East Coast. It's about a two-hour flight north of New York uh, to the major city, Halifax. So I grew up outside of that, a little town called Bridgewater. is about 8,000 people. And its major export is a Michelin tire factory. Um, and so, I mean, my specific start, I was very lucky um, in that I had a very technology-forward family. My, my father specifically, who's a family physician in the town, um very like my brother when we were young always ensured that there was a computer locally in the home um and so we always played lots of video games and so we always would you know it, the computer was central as long as i can believe we had like you know the basic we had like the original altair we only had like the you know the first uh ibm pieces that came out the entire series so i grew up with technology i was lucky that is not true of you know many of my peers they couldn't afford or didn't have access or didn't value technology in the same way i just had uh, a family that believed in the future value of technology and so i was very lucky in that regard but still i was very much isolated from the larger you know happenings like yeah it wasn't until i was much older in my life that i started to follow what was going on in silicon valley and so i developed very much independent of that but my unique thing that got me into into this sphere and very much into into technology startups building companies and what i do today is is actually through video games which i think is like a very common pattern from people i know that grew up outside of outside of the bubble of of the valley and silicon valley in general is you know i i had a passion for video games i've always been relatively entrepreneurial and i was i just started seeing people starting things around uh, around video games. And so one of them was, I used to play this game called Star Siege Tribes. And there was a, like a group of people that came together to like do radio broadcasts of like these very nerdy online video, <laughs> like matches that occurred between people. And I got, it, it, it incited me and this is around the time that Winamp was very popular and Showcast came out and it made it very easy and democratized like people's ability to, to broadcast audio on the internet because for lots of different reasons, the family was finally catching up and all these sort of things were happening. And so that's what really got me started. And it was just this progressive of like, okay, well, this is interesting and maybe I can get good at this. Um, and then that got me into scripting. I, there was like MIRC channels, RRC channels around video games. So then I started building like bots. And so that got me into programming. And all through this, I had an older brother. So I have a brother that's eight years older than me. He was always very technology forward as well. He's always very much ahead of me. So it was very much like a little brother, bigger brother thing going on where I, well, my brother was older. He played lots of video games. So I'm little brother. So of course I'm going to copy um, and, and mimic in very, very different ways. But it started this cycle of exploration and interest. And that's what's driven me to this day of, well, this is really interesting. There's a lot of things going on and I want to be a part of it. And through that, I, you know, numerous times throughout my teenage years, I started the age program at the age of 12, and numerous times through my teenage years, it would be, well, how can I build something that, that, that around something that I care about um, and also have other people be interested in what I'm doing? How can I build something of value for the community or how can I make this one thing easier or how I can do that, make it simpler? And it was always done through the cycle of inside like a very specific niche, which was like online video game, competitive online video games, um, radio broadcasts, bringing people together, media. Uh, and then it grew from that. Over time, I learned PHP and MySQL because you had to start building 
like league websites and you had to build like website like different types of websites and you had to start scaling them because now people were interested in what we were doing. So we had like 5,000 people that would actually listen to one of these matches this way before twitch.tv. Mm -hmm. This was like in 2006, Whoa. Um, way before like you could even watch video, like video was too bandwidth intensive for, for like the common person to be able to stream and subsequently watch like a live feed from a video game because it's just, there's just too much moving pixels. The FPS requirements were too high. And so eventually this led me into trying to, when I went to university, eventually this led me into trying to start um, my own video, not streaming, but like a video recorded, like a YouTube for video games. Um, and that's where I got started to get insight into like Silicon Valley is about the time that, around the time that Google bought YouTube and that clicked in my head and I got access to things like TechCrunch and I got access to things mm -hmm. Um, like uh, tech meme, um, and this, and I realized there's an entire world out there of people that have been building these incredible things, building these very su very successful companies that have large impact on society that are generally speaking like making it way easier for us to communicate. And that's really what really triggered it all. But there's like this very long, almost ten year journey from when I was you know like oh ten until I was twenty before I really got realized that there's actually this world outside of where I operate. And, then, um, and there was this world of venture capital and everything else. And then once you got into that Google YouTube, that, you know, that now, so that was 2006, probably, right? This was, yeah, this was around 2008 that, I, that we, I was building this sort of YouTube for video games. Yeah. And that was around the first, I would say, rise of global interest in Silicon Valley. Because that's, for me, I, I put it at the time that the movie... Uh, the social network came out um yeah and and i believe that was 2006 it might have been later but um and and that, that's actually funny enough because that's how it go i got interested in um in starting companies because i well not starting yes no in starting companies that's when i first start got interested in startup starting companies but that image of that that movie created was a very like uh hollywood version of silicon valley uh and uh and then it seemed to like spark this thing around the world. And then you mentioned that you listened to the episode that I did with Felipe, my co-founder. I noticed the same thing happened for him that he uh, spoke English because he had studied abroad. And so he got access to that same type of tech crunch battlefield, um, go around the world, 500 startups, all this different stuff that started probably around 2008. And I would say ended around 2015, 2016, uh, where the hype bubble kind of disappeared, but that didn't, change a lot of people like you who have persistent access to this field of information um, and field of interest but it also it's also this curiosity aspect which i think most people who got interested in these well so there's the curiosity that sustains people through the difficult challenges of starting a company and then there's the curiosity or drive towards social recognition which a lot of people started to cling on to the Silicon Valley thing because they could get that social recognition thing, or they thought they could get that social recognition thing. Um, and it also coincides with a <laughs> bunch of investment, people who would normally have gone into investment banking uh, or right out of college now started to go to Silicon Valley as that step that it became the way that you do it. It became the, 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 that's the, everybody knows it. like this is what you need in order to find a good place in life and society. There's nothing wrong with that, but I also think that it's contrary to how a lot of these things get started by essentially like crazy people or very curious people or 
um, people at the fringes of society who aren't really interested in how other people have done it before. It might be an overstep, but. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's interesting because like at the same, you're right. It's, you know, when you mentioned the social network, it, that was all at the same time. And that was something that really got me very excited and gung ho about the entire idea. For me, I always saw my drive at the time was like going back, growing up in this little town of 8,000 people where the primary export are tires and there's eight Tim Hortons, which is a coffee shop in Canada, you know, per, you know, there's eight Tim Hortons per capita, 1,000 people. The idea, this world that I, that was painted to me of what's possible in the world that's out there and like the things that I could access to and the things that I could create and build is what really captured my imagination and gave me the drive. It was, well, if I, what happens? I built something that people are really popular. What, what happens? I built something that really could have an impact. And that's what captured my imagination. And it still captured my imagination today and keeps me going independent of, you know, when there's a failure that occurs or independent of how hard things are or independent of like, well, you know, you could go just go get this simple job, at the big company and the big paycheck. Um, and that would be a much simpler and straightforward life, but it's really this capacity that we have through technology to create and create an impact and a positive impact, ideally, that really is what drives me today. And that's what drove me back then. Um, and it was through, you know, these mediums such as like the movies, like the social network, you know, TechCrunch and the battlefield. Cause I remember watching like the early TechCrunch disrupts that were live stream, um, in 2008 and 2009, uh, and and just this excitement, this palpable excitement, you know, reading Paul Graham essays, uh, reading his book, Hackers and Painters, all of these things were just this convergence and access. You know, the original book on the founding of Google, those were the things that got excited and painted this picture of the world was possible and truly is like the inspiring thing and is what makes it possible to, to, to keep going uh, um, for me specifically. And I think you highlighted a really important thing, which is the uh, nature of service. So I think one of the most sustaining things when doing anything in the world is if you can zoom out and see how this is in service of others. Uh, I found selfishly that that's one of the most sustaining ways to, to do something. It'll get you through the hard times. Um, and there was a thing about TechCrunch, so I'm losing it now, but so let's go into remote work and how you guys are doing that. Where is the whole team located? Sure. So it's just for, for context, uh, we founded the company out of an open source community. Um, so the team is located across North America um, and in Europe. So we have uh, four people in Halifax. We have uh, a person in New York, a person in San Francisco, and we have uh, two people in Europe, one in Berlin and one in France. So we're a team of nine today. And we have, it has been a journey to figure it out. I mean, the biggest thing there when you're starting a company and you're trying to go from zero to one is just the literal time zone spread. So how much overlap you actually have that where you're all awake and capable of like being productive on any group discussions or being together um, and how do you actually build a company that has to kind of operate as a hub and spoke model around this restricted time zone overlap. And that's been the biggest challenge and also some, also some of the most interesting challenge for me um, is figuring out, well, how do we build like processes and how do we go about like having conversations and how do we go about enabling like an asynchronous, asynchronous discovery process where 
you know, Morton, who's one of my co-founders in, in France, can be working on some very deep technical work while we have another person working in Berlin who's working on product, while we have another person in San Francisco that's having like a meeting with a customer, and how can we integrate all of these different facets together, stay on the same page, and also make decisions, but also enable each other to do our best work at the same time. And it's truly been about, a lot of it has been about trying to figure out like what is the operating system or what is the culture that we have to build today and what is the level of maturity that we require to actually execute upon like all of these processes that we need to, that we, that we have in this way of working such that we can enable this sort of asynchronous um, spread with where we require each other to be highly aligned because we're so, and we need high uh, transmission of information, like high bandwidth of information, but we have this short period of overlap on a daily mm. basis. So there's one episode I would suggest you listening to and anybody else who's interested. I interviewed the CEO of uh, GitLab um, and uh, Sid uh, from GitLab. And he, um, we talked all about that, about how did, how they did it for GitLab. How did they, how it arose organically, how that, how they kind of think about asynchronous work. Um, and then somebody you should talk to and maybe even listen to the episode I did with her is uh, Natalie uh, Nagel from Wildbit. Um, they, I know in the past few months have been focused on building processes. So, um, and they've been doing it, they've been doing remote work since 2001. So, uh, uh, so they've, they've got a lot of kind of history on how to do it, the best practices and stuff like that. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, GitLab is a great model. We look to them frequently for a lot of different things that we do. Uh, we also looked at like GitHub originally when the company was founded, it was very remote friendly, um, three, seven signals. There's a bunch of corpus of data out there and, and there's a, a small nugget of, of a couple of books um that have sort of started to explore these topics um mm. and, and and try to like build like ways in which you can operate and we've learned a lot from all of those sources and i i can't i can't uh, speak more more to it than that mm. you know it's been it's an interesting journey that requires a, a level of sophistication um and i think that's probably the biggest barrier to people trying to build a remote company is how willing are they to spend the time on the management component uh, that actually is required to get all of us working in a way such that we can actually actually work, right? Whereas you're not coming into the office, uh, you're all you're in your virtual garage in different time zones it, um, with different head spaces. And that's a really good point about the importance of content to this thing because content can only get you so far. And eventually, like, I'm sure it was helpful to look at all those other things, uh, other people doing it, but in the end, it's it's your unique situation and there are unique challenges to your company because there are uh, differences in the way that you work and differences in personality that all need to be customized to the individual situation. Would you, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, that's absolutely accurate. You know, I often think about there's best practice, there's what have people, other people have found successful and there's contextualizing all of that to like, well, does this really matter for our situation? Mm -hmm. And even if it does, can I convince the people that it matters? And so there's this process that you go through when you start building a remote company. You know, this is the second time I've tried to start doing this. Um, and it's, it's one is just the initial agreement and realization that, hey, we're all remote. And then two is, okay, we're all remote. Well, what are we feeling about this? Because the way, you know, Joe here or Jill there, the way that they interpret and the experience that they're going through and, and the impact on their day-to-day -day and how they cope with it is, could be vastly different because we're all unique individuals. Um, and it's a lot harder to know that. And so how do you build, how do you build ways that we can come together that have these open, that have open dialogue and open conversation where we can be empathetic towards one another to understand, well, I really need, I am feeling, you know, this way today and I'm feeling this way 
because I haven't been over to my house for a while or because I had a fight with my spouse and I, you know, I didn't have the 30 minute walk to work that I normally do. And I haven't built like the right rituals personally to enable me to be an incredibly successful remote worker yet because I'm still figuring it out and we all are still figuring it out. And so you, you have, you know, there's an analogy of a startup is like uh, that Reed Hoffman loves to use where it's like you're building an airplane as it's falling out of the sky and you're just trying to like, you know, you're trying to get the airplane to start and, and start climbing again before you hit the ground. And I, you know, that's very true of like this remote work culture because there's people burn out and remote we remote is new and it's not talked a lot about but remote is also really difficult mm. because some people just aren't meant for it and also it takes a certain level of individual maturity to be capable of getting up every day i don't go to an office where someone looks over my shoulder or is like watching what i'm doing and i you know i have to figure out what makes me successful such that i can show up and bring my best self virtually to the garage and that has been i think one of one of the big challenges that's required you know a lot of insight on my part and something i've learned is it's really, really about these like, basic individual things. And then it's how do you layer the right communication mechanisms on top of that, right? So how, what's the right way in which we communicate? What's the right way in which we make decisions? Well, how do we, how do we advertise those decisions? But it, it all comes down fundamentally to like the individual and how that person does remote successfully. Mm. It reminds me of a conversation I was having with somebody about and this goes back to an earlier point that I was making about, you know, what is the thing that a lot of Americans, maybe even Canadians are doing is that is after they get out of university, after they get out of this four year kind of like special place, uh, which keeps them separate from a lot of the challenges of, 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 of work and life. Um, and then how do they go from that into the actual challenges of work and life? And so an answer for a lot of people is that they move to San Francisco, they get a job at a text company like Airbnb where the processes are all very, very firm and, and they meet their friends who are all their peers and they're working the same, they drink, they have parties and stuff like that. That person would never fit into a remote work environment. Um, like in a remote work environment, you need to be able to be self-sustaining in your own uh, community building in, in your actual physical location. Um, and, and you need your, your habits set up and you, and, and, so it's it's a very difficult and isolating thing, but it is so interesting because what I'm chronicling here is you know you you guys are in Halifax. I had a conversation with uh, you know somebody in in um, you know Africa a few weeks ago, and all, all the and all of these early state a lot of the early stage companies that I'm talking with are they're not based in San Francisco. A lot of them are, and a lot of them will continue to come come here. Uh, but for those who aren't, it just makes sense to be remote. Um, at that early stage from that zero to one. And I'm really interested in building a catalog, catalog of, of the ones that are working because some of them will work and some of them will fail, which is natural. Um, and I'm, I'm really interested in building a catalog of, 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 these, of these ones who are doing it and why, what, what will be the outcome in a few years and stuff like that. Um, but it's just so interesting because it's, I'm actually, I'll, I'm, I'm now, I, my, main tenant for my apartment uh is leaving and i was subleasing in san francisco and it was a beautiful spot it was like i'm right next to golden gate park uh I've, we've got a guest room like it's just been amazing here uh, and it's rent controlled um but as soon as he leaves the rent is going to skyrocket uh and so i'm actually now thinking of, of 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 moving and uh to a place with a lower burn rate um and so i'm thinking of medellin colombia for the first few months uh and then 
eventually to Mexico City, where I want to chronicle. I, I think a lot of people are essentially moving from the rest of Latin America to Mexico City if they're starting a company that's focused on the Latin American market. Um, and so I want to go chronicle that. But um, so I'm 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 now basically fully committing to most of my interviews being done remotely, um, which is really interesting for me because it's already been happening for the past month or two. It's like most, most of the people I'm interested are talking to are not in San Francisco. Uh, so it's a really interesting thing. I don't know if anything that did that bring up anything that you find important to talk about. I mean, I think it's, I think that you you hit on a couple of like really important points, right? It's about, it's all about, I'd like go back to your, one of your first original points around that person that goes to, you know, Silicon Valley and they basically have this co-learning experience where I they pick up on social norms and how to be successful because they can watch and observe people in sort of this passive manner and they're surrounded by really excellent people but like remote is really hard especially early on I was having this conversation with someone here in Halifax who's been remote successful for 20 years hmm. very successful career very successful software engineer um, and he's like well why isn't everyone just go remote and make more money because you can make more money working as a remote person in Halifax a lot of the time that you can in the in the company because the ecosystem is really young, which is one of the reasons I actually dropped the labs is remote is realized, well, oh. we're really strong, like engineers, but the, the ecosystem is really young and the type of talent we need to build the thing that we're building just isn't, like it's not readily available here and the cost to create it exceeds like the time in which we'll be able to uh, acquire, like and make the company successful. So we need to go find the talent. And so for us, the talent is in you know France and it is in San Francisco, it is New York, it's in Berlin. And, um, and it, there's only real way we could build and do this company is through a remote company. It's like remote enables us to be possible because so few people actually actually are like experts in secure computation or understand deeply under have deep understandings of like the way that deep learning works and these different machine learning algorithms. And so there's a whole slew of stuff there that was really interesting. But when you think of it, okay, when you think of this conversation and this situation in which we live today, where it's like, well, if you're going to try and be, you know, remote worker at like, let's say a Stripe or a GitLab, well, how do they learn the social norms, right? What type of person is going to be successful in that environment? Because what they basically need to be is like much more entrepreneurial. Like we're moving to a world where everyone, in order, if you don't want to move, if you don't want to go work at one of these, or you can't move for lots of different reasons. Cause like your mom's sick or, you know, your spouse has a really great job or whatever it is, you have to learn, figure out how to be in order to get the optimum like situation for your career in order to make your potential in order to grow in these small places like Halifax. A lot of the time you may need to go outside of the ecosystem. You may need to go work remotely, but if you, but if you're not good working remotely, that's a real hamper. And so, there's this certain, for those of us who are m more self-fulfilling, uh, um, self-actualizing, then it's a huge opportunity. And for those that aren't self-actualizing, may need to learn how to become self-actualized and to truly realize the opportunities. It takes a ton of self-discipline to be successful remote because it requires, instead of you being able to intrinsically and passively sit back and observe these people and their behaviors and why they're successful and mm -hmm. figure out how to be successful yourself, you have to go out and like find the information which oftentimes is like not a higher bandwidth in terms of like the time investment. Like you go and read, a, there's a lot of things you read that actually don't create a lot of value for you. Mm -hmm. There's a very few number of things that do create a ton of value. And so it's this whole process of figuring out where do you get this information to be successful. So there's two things I wanted to talk about based on that. There's the long tail of smaller ecosystems. I was talking to somebody who's based in Denver and Denver is a, a relatively large ecosystem with a lot of talent that you can find local talent and it's gonna become a 
essentially a uh, not a rival to Silicon Valley, but a complementary. Uh, essentially, like it will be viable to have the ambition to start a company in Denver without moving into San Francisco, and it can be headquartered there. And same thing, in New York. Same thing, in Los Angeles. But there's a long tail of smaller ecosystems, like for example, in Halifax. Um, maybe uh, looking at the map, you know, maybe uh, Gainesville, Florida or um, Guadalajara, Mexico, um, that are smaller and don't have that access. And they, they essentially, that long tail remote work is really, really interesting for those people like you who are, who, are, who are experts in this very specialized field and can essentially dig down into it and find the experts around the world who, and then join with them remotely, which is really interesting. Yeah, exactly. That, exactly. And that's the entire, that's the road's our entire thesis is, this is the enabler. This is the thing that kind of had to come along for this type of company to be possible um, outside of the valley, right? Like it's possible inside the valley, but in, but in order to find the rest of the talent, it's super dispersed across the entire globe. And so the thing that unlocks the opportunity is the ability to actually like pull people together and operate a company and go on the path of creation from zero to one um, distributed. And mm-hmm. so there's, that's, that's the thing. And that's like this, there's this new global skill set that you need to build this type of company that requires a certain level of maturity um, on the individual's part and on the, 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 the part of the organization. But once you have that, you have, you can unlock, as you were saying, this huge long tail of talent, this huge long tail of opportunity. And some of these opportunities are massive, right? Like they're just absolutely massive. Like GitLab's a great example. That is a massive opportunity, but it's enabled because there's this whole long tail Mm-hmm. of talent that now Sid at GitLab has access to, and he's leveraged that very well. And a lot of these things are also coinciding, at least in, certain, in terms of like the developer tools and infrastructure space around open source, right? Because open source is a natural mm-hmm. place where you have people who are doing remote work, they're used to sitting alone. They, for years, we've been building open source, like the Linux kernel and these important open source projects. Um, they already have the infrastructure to be successful. And so a lot of, you have a lot of these companies that are figuring out how to do remote because they were open source first. And then it's like, well, now we, now we're a company and we're putting like, you know, a definition around what we're doing and a, a payment structure. And there's like a, there's like a, a, a reward system, a monetary reward system in place for us being successful in this way. But a lot of those core skill sets were learned inside open source. That's really interesting. And this goes back to the point that I've talked with a few other people is we've got developers have been comfortable doing remote work for a while now. Um, and that's, you know, if any team, you know, most of the teams in Silicon Valley are allowing their development team to be remote because it's just such a natural thing. Uh, and then another interesting thing is that sales is also a job that has primarily been done either remotely on the phone or, um, or in the field. And that was actually maybe even the primary, uh, uh, mm. the primary way that sales was done. Um, and you know, there's different types of sales and, and, uh, but, uh, but sales talking to people, uh, does seem to be something that can be done remotely. And as I've moved more and more of my life remotely, um, I am noticing, like, I do not notice that much of a difference between this conversation and a conversation I was, I'm having with a person. There's about a 2%, 3% thing about of a, a of a intimacy level, but I've essentially adapted myself not to need that anymore. Um, and it, it doesn't really affect me either way, um, which is, which is a really interesting, I would, I'd be curious whether it, now that you've been doing remote work for a while, like, have you found that same thing happen to you? Yeah. You know, initially I'll be upfront of remote work was really hard and I had like serious internal questions of whether this was a thing that I was capable mm-hmm. of. 
And then like most things that are very difficult over time, you know, the human, we're incredibly adaptive as humans. Um, and over time you, you begin adapting and you get used to the new normal and you don't, you like, I missed going into the office and doing the, like having the coffee with people and, and sitting next to people and that like that daily uh, intimacy you have with just like being in the same room with somebody. But over time you, you relearn how to do those things. You relearn what the right way is to get, the sort of the oxytocin fix you get from being inside an office. How do you do that virtually? And how do I communicate? And you also get to appreciate a lot of the new, new you know, as, as your conditions change, you get to appreciate the pros and then you, you have to deal with the cons. Mm-hmm. And so it's taken a long time. I, you know, the first year was rough, um, but through talking with other remote people and then through, you know, trying to build a company, um, now I, I'm very much trying to enjoy it and figuring out what the right way is for, for me specifically to be quite successful. And I think for the uh, access and the ability to do deep work, which is very much what we do, mm. um, because we're, we're very much like a deep tech company, um, we need a lot of time heads down. Remote actually unlocks this huge opportunity for us because there's a huge opportunity for independent thought, right? Whereas if we were all in an office, the day-to-day... Um, let's say anarchy that occurs inside a startup is there because you're trying to find part market fit. You're trying to figure out how you're going to take this, you know, get this airplane to take off as you're putting parts onto it. Um, that you're kind of isolating people from that. And so if you think about what you were saying with sales and engineering, I mean, those are both very much in some ways, these sort of deep work focused uni task experiences. I think the challenge inside companies is how do you enable the middle of the company, you know, like the go-betweens between the sales and the engineers to be successful as well. So how do you enable like the product managers to be successful uh-huh. in this environment where these jobs are very much about like communication and how do you enable like the marketers to be successful so that like everyone understands what everyone needs and can empathize with like these, these, this middle component that actually is like the, the, the hub of the business and the engineers are very much like spokes and you kind of think of sales as too. I mean, they're all very important. There's not, none of it works without any of them, but that is one of the, uh, I think one of the challenges for a lot of, a lot of people that are sort of sit in those like middle fields um, is okay. Well, how do I do this? I'm so used to just being able to sit in a room and there's a whiteboard. Like how do I go about doing my job? Because for mm-hmm. an engineer, a very, very much comes down to, well, I'm still getting GitHub issues and writing them and I'm still using like, Storing code is, and it's quiet and it's even better accelerates those things. Um, and I'm still like doing pull request reviews and I'm still doing code reviews, but, and I'm interfacing with the team and, but it's those people that spend all day in a meeting. Like how do you make the managers mm. um, successful? That mm. I think that's a huge jump mm. for, for many. How, how is, uh, you know, as we're, as we're going into uh, the, the weather's changing, how, how does, how is winter? Is winter much more difficult to do this for you? You know, in Canada and Halifax specifically, our weather patterns are actually quite not great. You know, we spend a good, a good seven months of the year. Um, not seven, I'd say six months of the year. It's dark most of the, a lot of the day, you know, uh-huh. we, we have about eight to 10 hours of sunlight. Um, and our winter isn't like you can go out and do a lot of snow sports. We actually have a very warm winter um, where we get a lot of rain and snow and it then freezes drastically. So it's like very icy. So it's not super conducive to being physically active outside. So I, uh, so a lot of people in Nova Scotia, and this is true in, in most of the Atlantic provinces and um, is it's just very difficult. It's like a very hard time of year. And a lot of people get, you know, depressed, seasonal depression. And so, yeah, it is, it's a lot more difficult. I found personally that in the winter, you also, it 
but you, there's an upside to all of that is that in the winter, it's a lot easier to focus. Yeah. You, there's a lot less noise around you and you don't have the drive to be outside because it really is quite awful out there. Mm. And so you actually get this productivity boost. Um, if you don't, if you can, if you're capable of staying active and keeping, you know, the right endorphins pumping and, and having the right positive mindset, mm. uh, to, 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 to accept your conditions and, and sustain through some of the worst parts, you have so much more time to really be, have do deep focus, creative work. Mm. Um, and so I think that actually is like, uh, for us, it's very much. And in my experience, the last 10 years working out of Halifax and building companies and software and products is it's an advantage that we have. It's something I've been thinking about as I get older. So I spent most of my twenties in uh, tropical countries, uh, and, you know, I grew up in California, so it wasn't like I was uh, having really harsh winters when I was growing up either, but the mild winters, I still wanted to escape those. So I, I was lived in tropical countries and I've thought about this a lot, which is, and now that I've back in San Francisco, which again, it's a mild winter, but that mild winter is like, it's a, the winter serves an important function in our evolutionary, you know, makeup is, is that it, there is this time where things descend and, and go we go deeper and, and more internal. And then as summer comes arise, we come back and we go external world and stuff like that. I'm actually going to skip it this summer, <laughs> this winter, because nice. life is a, I, I do, I struggle with, with, uh, with depression and, and, uh, and the, the sun is very helpful. So I'm, I'm going to go spend my, my winter in, uh, Medellin. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that, in that, how it will affect me as I jump my body over to another location and how that will affect my mental state. Um, so it's a, it's an interest in these environments, like, uh, you know, like Northern European environments, which is in some ways responsible for the enlightenment, or at least like that mixture of the Northern enlightenment, uh, uh, Northern European culture with the rediscovery of, of lost books from the middle East that were actually from Greece and, and then also access to information from, uh, India and wisdom from India, um, and then and then created this enlightenment thing, um, which is like I believe that startups are basically like a, a direct connection from that. It's like, what is the empirical evidence? How do we test this empirical evidence against against reality? And like, what is the truth? I believe that building a company is getting down to that essentially, like, what is the truth of our situation? And um, and so I think it's an interesting thing and and winter played a very important role for that for that for whatever it was that was going on in northern europe that led to this this rediscovery and kind of enlightenment ideal stuff so i don't know if any yeah. of that sparked anything no totally and I, I often think about you know i've i've read and i don't have an exact uh source for this right now so but i've read that you know generally speaking the east coast of the united states tends to be more productive and so i've always wondered um you know, in New York, we have this, New York is this burgeoning uh, startup ecosystem. And uh, we're very thankful that we have investors that are in New York, Ed Sim from Bold Start Ventures, and that to be hooked into that ecosystem. And it's, it's very much blowing up. You know, there's a lot of FinServe companies, but there's a lot of like incredible they, companies like Datadog, for example, that are based out of there. Um, and, and I've always wondered, like, why is that? Like, why is it? I think there's a couple different reasons. Uh, one is like, I mean, New York City, you have access to a ton of customers. There is, you know, you're hooking into this deep ecosystem of, of people that are there. They're there to try and make it, right? They're there to try and prove. They're trying to get ahead. Mm. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know what? New York in the winter also sucks. Um, it sucks mm. in Halifax. In New York in the winter is not great either, right? The subway shuts down because of a snowstorm or, you know, you're walking through slush. Like, 
have been there, you know, the cold wind blows down Manhattan Island, um, all for all of those reasons, you really want to stay inside, but that really creates this, this focus, right? Mm -hmm. This harsh, these harsh environments build a certain level of sustainability, the ability to sustain pain and the ability to be like, well, this all comes, gets over, you know, I can, I know that there's an other side to this and I can look towards the other side and I just keep my head down and I keep plowing through and I just focus on getting through it. Um, instead of worrying about like my current condition that I'm going to be able to, I'm going to be able to make this success. And I think there's things that these harsh climates, like the, the envir environments are important to us and we're growing up in a harsh climate definitely teaches you how to sustain, um, through, for, through more painful times that are more difficult to deal with. And it makes the summer all the more valuable too, I imagine. Exactly. Exactly. It makes the winds, you know, it makes the winds better and the summer is, is you know very lucky here in Halifax is very beautiful it's the best time of year to be here if you ever if anyone ever listening to this podcast decides to go to the east coast of Canada I would highly suggest coming out in August September October it's the best time to be here um but like the rest of the year is kind of crappy and so you really want to maximize your time that way mm -hmm. um but that also follows like you know a sinusoidal wave of sorts if you think of like the time in which I'm doing deep work and then the time where I'm de decompressing and figuring out what I'm doing next it's kind mm -hmm. of false. Interesting. Well, cool. Thank you so much for this. This has been a huge pleasure. And um, how can people find out more about you and more about Dropout Labs? Awesome. Thank you. It has been wonderful. It was a great conversation. You can find me on Twitter at Ian Livingston uh, with an E on the end of STEM. And on you can find Dropout Labs at www.dropoutlabs.com or on Twitter, Dropout Labs AI. And this is just a random question. You don't have to answer it. But if uh, if you do want to answer it, what is the main challenge that you guys are facing? And if anybody is listening in the audience, how can they think about helping you? Absolutely. You know, the main challenge we're facing is we're solving a problem of trying to add privacy technologies to the data science lifecycle. So enabling data scientists to access data that they could access before to create more valuable models. And we're looking to speak to anyone that uh, is facing those problems. Uh, we'd love to learn from those types of people. Um, and love to share what we're working on. Cool. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I am moving from a bi-weekly publishing rhythm to a daily weekday during the weekday publishing rhythm because I have a lot of interviews that I need to publish. And so I'll be releasing every one of these every day, Monday through Friday. Uh, usually I'll get to it in the afternoon. And I hope you guys are enjoying this. Please find us on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom. We're also on Spotify and Stitcher and all of the other major podca podcasting platforms. Uh, it would be very helpful if you were to leave a review, if you enjoy this content, if you're, if you're getting value out of it. And find me at Stuart Allsop, I, I, I on Twitter. I'd love to hear what you think about this episode.